Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Value Perspective. If you listened to our recent episode featuring Sean Pesh, you might recall that he said he would like to meet James Montier, the author of one of his favorite books. Well, today, that dream is coming true. Sean and Andy Evans are welcoming James to the pod. James Montier is an author, a member of GMO's asset allocation team, and a partner at the firm. Previous to his tenure at GMO, he was co-head of global strategy at Societe Generale. He is also a visiting fellow at Durham University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. In this episode, Andy, Sean, and James will discuss James's piece on the seven sins of fund management, James's thought on his latest piece explaining why he was wrong to predict that corporate margins were supposed to come down, and why they had stuck above their respective median for so long, and Andy's favorite investment piece, If It Makes You Happy, also authored by James, many years ago when he worked for Dresden Kleinwert. This was a delightful episode to make, and we hope you enjoy it just as much. Enjoy. James Montier, it's a pleasure to have you on the Value Perspective podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Also very pleased that we have a special interviewer with us today, and that's Sean Pesh. Welcome to being an interviewer. You've obviously been a, a guest on the show before, but how's it to be an interviewer? Andy, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but thank you so much to, uh, to you guys at Schroders for the invitation. Uh, I feel like I'm at, at the end of my last podcast, I recommended James's book, and I feel like I'm on fund manager Make-A-Wish. <laughs> so um, this, is a, this is a rare treat. So thank you for the opportunity. Very good. James, maybe we get started at the very top. Uh, people uh, imagine will we'll know you and, and know some of your work, but how about just give us a bit of background and where you've been in terms of job-wise and career-wise? Sure. So, God, I started, uh, this is the scary thought, I started nearly 30 years ago in this industry. And the, the sad point is that I still think of myself as that 20-year-old in the office and I look around and I'm, I'm suddenly the old fart. And I'm like, how did that happen? How did I go from being you know, this young, thrusting, massively confident 20-year-old to where I am now in my, in my mid-50s thinking, God damn, these whippersnappers, you know? <laughs> um, so I started all the way back in, in 92 at uh, what was then Clywalt Benson. Um, and I joined as an economist. Uh, having trained in economics, and I was incredibly fortunate. I worked alongside Albert Edwards, who uh, who is a great friend of mine, and an amazing team of people at Dresdner over the years. And then I left to to do a short stint at Old Mutual, and then Albert and I reunited um, at Dresdner for a second time. Um, and then from there, we went to SocGen, 
And from SockGen, GMO headhunted me. I, I got a call from Ben uh, Inca one day, which was now 14 years ago. And Ben said, would you like to come and work at GMO? And of all the firms that I'd ever come across, there was only kind of a handful that I thought could I could possibly work with. Because I'm, as I think Ben said, I could be very frustrating. And I know there's not a, a huge number of places that would tolerate my attitudes uh, and habits. And so uh, GMO was, was kind of Somebody asked me what it was like working at GMO, and I described it as flypaper for freaks. You know, if, you, if you're essentially unemployable anywhere else, you're, you're full at home at GMO. Um, and so uh, that's kind of where I ended up. And now, 14 years later, I'm, I'm still there having a, a whale of a time. Fantastic. And I'm glad you mentioned Ben Inca. We, we might come back to him a little bit later on. Um, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how I got into your stuff, because I was actually at Dresner all those years ago, and I used to read your uh, your work. And absolutely fascinated that there was someone sat there writing about how useless everyone else was in the department sat around there. And, and so I was instantly drawn to that. And I always enjoyed your work. And I think you have some partial responsibility for me being a value investor, for which I don't know whether to hug you or to, to hit you, really. But uh, that, that, that's where we've ended up. But Sean, I, I think you've got a, a similar sort of background in enjoying James's work over time. I, I do indeed, James. So the first time I came upon your work was at Orbis. And um, that was in 2000 and, um, that was, yeah, it was in 2005 when you wrote that Dresner piece. And I have to say that it is the only piece of broker research I've ever kept for as long as that. And I still have it. And, and I, I seem to recall you being at, at SockGen, but when I downloaded it the other day, of course, I saw Dresner. And I thought the seven sins of fund management really hit home to me. And, and many of them we actually embody in, in how we manage the Global Equity Fund at Ranmore Fund Management. So, so first of all, thank you for that. But for the benefit of those people who haven't read your piece, I wondered if maybe you would just start and just run through some of, well, run through the seven sins and then ask you, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years has passed since then. Have any sins changed or are there any new ones? That's a good question. So yeah, the seven sins, that was that was a, a collection I put out in well, 2004, 2005, and was a um, an attempt to to kind of analyze the average investment process and where I thought people were were making mistakes. And probably the biggest single mistake was kind of the massive over-reliance on forecasting. And one of my favorite quotes comes from, from Lao Tzu, the, uh, the sixth century uh, BC poet, who said, those who have knowledge don't predict, those who predict don't have knowledge. Um, and it always struck me as weird that uh, our industry was kind of obsessed with trying to know the future, and yet the future was inherently unknowable. And I, uh, years later, after I wrote that piece, I came across a great quote from Elroy Dimson of the LBS, who said, risk is more things can happen than will happen. And I really like that because it, it framed some of what I was trying to get at uh, when I was talking about the folly of forecasting, which is, you know, history always looks beautiful and linear, right? It, it is, oh, this is the, the sequence of events. But at any point in time, uh, we could have branched out in, in a myriad different ways. And trying to, to choose which of those paths we were going to go down is, is now impossible. And it doesn't matter whether you look at economists and, and their inability to forecast growth and inflation, or whether you're talking to analysts and their inability to forecast earnings. There's, there's just no evidence that people can forecast well. And so putting that at the heart of an investment approach, I thought was was kind of nuts. It's why would you, you know, and, and that was kind of the, the typical investment process. It was, hey, we start by forecasting you know, GDP or inflation, and then we we take that down into stocks and sectors, and we forecast earnings. And I was like, 
Why? Why would you put something that is so deeply flawed at the heart of your approach? And so that was probably the first and most obvious uh, of the, the the seven sins, that kind of overconfidence and over-optimism that, that really drive our behavior. It made me wonder why people do that. And then, then I came across the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a kind of neat little uh, psychological um, set of results, which shows that the people who who are worst at forecasting also lack the skills to know that they are the worst at forecasting. Um, so they are both, you know, unaware and appalling. Um, and maybe that's a blissful combination. I don't know. Um, but it, it's it's um, that kind of thing is it's just mad to me. So that was that was the first of the sins that I kind of really wanted to take on. And I looked at, at kind of the degree of over-optimism and overconfidence that people had. And I came across this beautiful study on, on two different groups of people, weathermen and doctors. Uh, and weathermen, it uh, turns out, uh, are really, really good at knowing they are bad, right? I mean, you know, particularly here in the UK where we live on this tiny island and we get blown around all over the place. And, you know, who the hell knows what the weather's going to be tomorrow. And weathermen are therefore pretty well calibrated. They know they're pretty shit. But doctors are a terrifying bunch of people. These guys are so sure about everything. And that that was and the reason is they don't get feedback, right? You know, if you if you go to the doctor and and you know he gives you a diagnosis and then you you die two weeks later, he may not even know. And so that lack of feedback is is very clear. And weathermen just they they're like, oh yeah, look, we were wrong again, you know, it's fine. I got drenched. I should have taken a brolly, I didn't. Damn. You know, the feedback is is really immediate. For doctors, that's not the case. And then there was a study that showed that the one people who made doctors look like they were unsure turned out to be investors. Uh, and investors are even more confident than doctors about everything. And I, I, that was just staggering because, you know, there are days when I get up and I'm not sure that I even exist, let alone anything else. You know, I could be a brain in a jar for all I know, uh, spend, spend time watching The Matrix, right? And it, it's a terrifying prospect that people are so sure about stuff. And so I, that really struck me as... A very odd thing to to kind of really base your investment approach on. Yeah, I know the future. Really great. Uh, I sure as hell don't. And if I don't, how do I build an investment process that doesn't rely on me doing that? Uh, so sorry, that was that was sin number one. I'll try and be briefer on the others because otherwise we we may take up the entire time we have. So uh, then I, I kind of moved on from uh, that that folly of forecasting into some other areas, and in particular, I started looking at the idea that effectively the uh, the people thought that that more knowledge was was better knowledge and this obsession with with knowing more and that struck me again as as kind of weird i was like well why would i care about everything and our industry is great at that you know i used to work with an analyst who was brilliant in terms of technical detail but he was a tech analyst at the time and he used to take a, a pc around with him and he'd take the pc apart in front of, of of fund managers and he'd explain every little bit and i'd be like geez wow i never knew that's how a pc worked um could he forecast for toffee no <laughs> could he convince these guys that they should be investing in this pc absolutely and i was like why why do i care about how this thing works all i need to know is you know how much is the company actually worth how much am i paying for it Rather than hey look this little chip does this and it was it it was just staggering and there was this wonderful study by Paul Slovic with bookmakers and he said to them look I'm going to give you various amounts of information I want you to handicap this horse race and what he found was their accuracy was constant regardless of the amount of information he gave them uh, they they kind of came up with the the same degree of accuracy of their view 
But what happened was as he gave them more and more information, so their confidence soared. And so all this extra information they were gathering wasn't improving their performance in the slightest. It was just making them more and more confident. And I think the same thing happens in, in our industry. You know, there's, there's this, um, my my dad, bless him, he used to say that um, specialists were people who learn more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing. Uh, <laughs> but unless you're a specialist, you're in great danger of learning less and less about more and more until you know absolutely nothing about everything. Um, and, and that was... That kind of that always stuck with me. I love that quote. I have no idea where he was a tremendous plagiarist, uh, so I have no idea where he stole it from. But um, it was a great little framing, and I've always thought of myself as not a not a specialist, right? I, I know less and less about more and more, but I try and just think about what matters. You know, let's let's instead of trying to know everything about everything, let's just focus on the few things that really really matter, and that's that's anathema to analysts, right? They they, they want to know everything about everything. And we like people who sound confident. The more confident somebody sounds, the more we are are, are comfortable with them. You know, let's go back to those doctors, bless them. You know, if you're a doctor, you go and say, doctor, I've got this, you know, strange rash. And he goes, oh, yeah, oh, I, I don't know what that is. Take these and, and see if you're alive in a week. You're not going to feel so great about life. If you walk in and say, doctor, I've got this strange rash. And he goes, don't worry. I know exactly what that is. Take this. You'll be fine. You feel much better about life. Yeah. And so the, the that that habit of, being confident, I think, is is increased by the amount of information we have. And therefore, there's this obsession with collecting information. I'm a, a collective compulsive. You can see my office behind me. I have a tremendous amount of toys and Lego, and I, I love collecting stuff. So I know that I am prone to, to wanting to collect stuff, but I've had to train myself to make sure that collecting information isn't part of that, that obsession because it's it's too easy to fall into. That takes us on to sin number three, actually. One of the ways in which people collect information is meeting companies, right? It's the, it's kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'll probably get into trouble for saying this, but hey, what the hell? It, it's kind of like intellectual masturbation, right? It's tremendous fun and it, it's great to meet companies, but is there really any benefit to it? And it, it's far from obvious to me that most investors get any benefit from it. Why? Well, first of all, it's just an exercise in collecting information. It's that we're back to that increasing confidence rather than accuracy. Secondly, corporate managers are just as likely as the rest of us to suffer cognitive illusions. And guess what? They're going to be overconfident too. Every manager you ever meet is going to be more optimistic about their firm than they are about everybody else's firm. You know, when was the, the, the last time a firm turned up at the office and went, oh, do you know what? We're a really terrible company. Uh, we have appalling management. I wouldn't touch us with a barge pole. If they did, I'd, I'd almost certainly invest in them. Um, but they, they don't, right? They all turn up and say, oh, you know, either we're brilliant or we're on the brink of a turnaround. It's going to be great in the future. You know, they never turned up and said, do you know what? We haven't got a clue. Frankly, I, I'd fire us. Yeah, it's, it just doesn't happen. So you get this hugely biased source of information. On top of that, we have a really bad habit of looking for the information that agrees with us, confirmatory bias. And that is a huge problem. So when you do meet company managements, you, you want to hear all the things you want to hear. And that, that's a major problem. So you're not collecting information in an unbiased fashion. You also, as human beings, we have this terrible tendency to obey figures of authority. And let's be honest, you know, if you get the CEO and the CFO of a company in there, they're at the top of their tree. They are a figure of authority. Therefore, there is this kind of 
oh, we must doff our cap. We must, you know, they must, they're, they're authority figures. We must do what they say. Uh, and we know that humans will do all sorts of weird things when people appear to be in a position of authority. Uh, Stan Milgram proved that with some uh, experiments where he got people to shock other people. Uh, and they were told to shock them by people wearing a lab coat. And simply the point that they were wearing their lab coat made them a figure of authority, which is it's just staggering that people are, are willing to, to shock another human being with electricity on the orders of somebody wearing a white coat. Um, it, it's staggering that people don't stop and think, Jesus, am I am I being nice here? Should I, should I be shocking this? No, I was told to do it. Bang, let's crank it up. Um, you know, it's where is people's thought control here? Also, there's uh, there's the problem. We we are actually terrible at spotting liars, right? Just think about Enron. Think about Madoff. And those are really extreme cases. But all the evidence says we can't tell whether somebody's lying to us or not. There's all this tremendous industry about oh, micro expressions and spotting lies. Most of it's complete bullshit. Uh, nobody's trained to do it anyway, and it doesn't work. Uh, so there's there's no idea. You know, company management. Oh yeah, we're going to turn it around. Oh great, great. You know. We're not really very good at spotting when people are lying to us. So I, I think that, you know, that was the, the 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 third of the sins was this obsession with kind of meeting company managements and wasting hours and hours of time uh, listening to effectively a, a kind of echo chamber of agreement, which to me was just a, a, a nonsense. It's like, why would you, you choose to spend your time doing that? Sin number four was um, really thinking you can outsmart everybody else, thinking you are always one step ahead, like market timing, the idea that, that people could uh, you know, pick the bottom and, and uh, uh, call the top. There's just no evidence that we can do that. Ben Graham used to talk about uh, the way of, of timing and the way of pricing. Um, the way of timing is trying to be one step ahead of everybody else. And Keynes pointed out, it's incredibly hard to do this. He talked about the beauty contest, right, where the objective was not – there was a, a set of photos and you had to pick the prettiest person. And it, it wasn't the, – the objective actually wasn't to pick the prettiest person, but to pick the person the average person would find prettiest. And when you play those kinds of games, what you find is you can do it mathematically and you find that people are really bad at being just one step ahead of everybody else. And it's the same idea when you're kind of trying to call a top or, 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 or find the bottom. It's just really hard. Why would you do it? And we've all seen those studies where you see, uh, oh, if you miss the best five days or you miss the best, uh, the worst five days, you know, the impact that can have on your investment performance is enormous. Um, and that's that's all about the way of timing, which is next to impossible. So instead, I, I long argued that we should follow the way of pricing. Right, that hey, if something's cheap, I'll buy it. Yes, it could get cheaper, but I already have a margin of safety in there. And so I, I always thought that that was a kind of a much better framing of a, an investment philosophy was to say, okay, look, I know I can't time stuff, and therefore I won't. I'm going to buy what's cheap, knowing it get cheaper, and not own what's expensive, knowing it get more expensive. Um, the problem with doing that is, of course, everybody wants short term results. And there's that over-focus on short-termism. And that can lead to, to over-trading. And the average holding period for a stock is, is what, 10 months today on the, in, in the US, which is insane. You know, if we go back to uh, the 50s and 60s, it was 10 to 12 years. Now it is less than one year. I think at one point, somewhere around about 2008, it got down to, to something like six, five, six months. That's not investment. That's just speculation. 
that that's just absolutely insane and i don't know anybody who can who can say anything about the next you know year it's it's next to impossible the next 12 years okay we can begin to think about valuation mattering but on a one year view who the hell knows so that absolute obsession with the short term and trying to be one step ahead of everybody else just made no sense to me and trying to to think about ways of structuring an investment process that didn't fall into that was was really important the next sin was was believing everything you read right that we have a really really bad habit of, of what talib calls the narrative fallacy which is is kind of believing what we read and this goes back to a hugely uh, old debate in, in philosophy which is between descartes and spinoza and descartes said that we kind of could hold an idea in limbo and then evaluate it and spinoza said no 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 that's wrong the way that, that we hold ideas is we tend to believe them to be true, and then sometimes we go and check whether they actually are or not. And it turns out you can test those experiments, and Dan Gilbert did a huge amount of work in this field. And he showed that we are essentially Spinozian, that we really do believe what we read, and therefore stories matter. And there were some, some great experiments done on um, trials, in one trial, uh, they allowed the information to, to pop up randomly through the course of a trial, as it genuinely would. In another, they plotted out a story and had the uh, the prosecution lay out the story uh, of the, the events. Now, in both cases, the same information was revealed, but it's just the format in which it was revealed. And uh, the conviction rate was massively higher when the story was, was used, despite the fact that the same evidence appeared just randomly in the other case. And so we are suckers for a story. And so that's what our industry is, right? We're, we're, we're dream sellers. And it's it's a, a terrible reflection on us that we, we wander around you know, selling stories to people. And it's it, it, because they work, right? They're emotional. They, they make it easy to process. Um, and so people cling on to stories, which is a dreadful way of thinking. It's, it's one of the reasons I like the quants I work with, they, they, they lack any imagination. Um, and they, they don't, they don't have stories. They have numbers, right? They're like, great. I'm, I'm going to get fired off this. Interview, you know that. Um, or at least run out of friends, but I'm used to that. That's why I work from here. Uh, it's um, safer for me, uh, let alone them. But it, yeah, they, they just, they're like, here's the numbers. Uh, this is what matters. Uh, balls to the story. Nobody cares. But the, the average investment philosophy is all about the story and selling the story or buying the story. And it's a really, really bad way of, of kind of handling information. So that was uh, that was another sin that I, I kind of wanted to, uh, to to make sure that people were aware of and, and tried as hard as they, they could to steer clear of, um, which I'm pretty sure takes me uh, on to the, the final of the seven sins, uh, which was the, the kind of fallacy of group decisions. And... There is a belief that groups make better decisions than individuals. Uh, writ large, that's kind of the wisdom of crowds kind of stuff. But uh, in micro, it can be, yeah, oh, well, yeah, two heads are better than one. Well, it turns out that actually groups aren't very good at making decisions. What tends to happen is groups beyond a, a really small size, like three people can just about work. But you get much beyond three people. And what tends to happen is people stifle their own opinions. And instead, they begin to share common information. 
because of conformity. We like to agree with people. Most people like to agree with people. I've made a career out of disagreeing with almost everybody. So um, perhaps I'm, I'm just a weirdo. But uh, most people like to agree with other people. Um, and so there's this habit of groups where they, they instead of bringing kind of what you'd hope a group would do, would bring these divergent opinions together and discuss them and evaluate them. No, groups come together and they all talk about what they agree on, which is a really bad way of uncovering information. And the wisdom of crowds really only holds in uh, with some very, very strict uh, provisos, like, you know, only when people have some idea about the correct answer, only when their views are entirely independent. These are the sorts of things that make the wisdom of crowds work, but they're not a good description of financial markets. And so we shouldn't think of financial markets as, as anything like the wisdom of crowds. They're more like the madness of crowds, where we, we see people charging off uh, doing strange things. So for me, that that belief that the groups and investment committees uh, were effective decision-making bodies was just flying in the face of, of, of all the evidence that we had. And so collectively, those things I thought doomed the average investment process to, to be a, a pretty ropey process. Thanks, James. And so with the, the benefit of, you know, a further almost 20 years of knowledge, are there any new sins you'd add? Uh, no, I think that one of the nice things about sins like these is that they they tend not to change that much. If anything, they they kind of um, get worse. If anything, I, I think over time, right? There's there's a belief that behavioural biases should be kind of, I guess, enumerated um, or removed either by us learning, which is fairly laughable, or by you know uh, the the efficiency of markets. Well, I don't believe in either of those two things. Right. I, I wrote a paper earlier this year, which um, actually I, I should probably publish for, for GMO war more widely. But it was written for uh, we have a subgroup at GMO, which <laughs> is um, aimed at uh, retirement planning. It's called Nebo, which is needs based optimization. Um, and I wrote a paper for them on, on behavioral biases. And it was really about I called it Darwin's mind. And it was about the origins of behavioral biases. And it basically argued that the the brain is the process uh, is the outcome of a process of evolution and evolution is incredibly glacial in the way it moves and so we shouldn't expect behavioral biases to change and when i look at the the kind of average investment process i still think the the seven sins are are, are relevant right the, the the holding periods are still short People are still forecasting. Uh, most people spend their time meeting company managements. There are still committees going on. You know, it's it's not like anything has has kind of altered as far as I can see, which is depressing when you've written an entire book on on why people shouldn't do these things. But good from a, a point of view of hey, look, these things are still absolutely valid. And I guess we're learning new liars. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried is a current one. Yeah, exactly right. That we, I think it was, uh, you know, it was Marx. History uh, uh, doesn't doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. Um, you know, the, these are um, these are the things we keep coming up against time and again. And you're right. Yeah, there's another generation of of lies and frauds, and it's the nature of the world. Yeah. Do, do you think that anything at all, given you were writing about this 20 years ago, and there's been a lot of books which have come out on the behavioural side of things? Do you think anything's changed for the better, or we're just the same people that we were before. Humans like to do the things they like to do, and therefore changing this behaviour is incredibly difficult unless you're very, very focused on changing it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that it's really hard to change. 
right? Amos Tversky, the, the, the late great Amos Tversky, who with Danny Kahneman really created this field, he said that uh, he never discovered anything that secondhand car salesmen hadn't known for generations. And I'm like, yeah, he's right. And it's just testament to human nature. Unless you are really focused on changing and figuring out ways of de-biasing and probably more importantly, re-biasing, because there's this, this belief that we can de-bias, that we can wave a magic wand and the, the, these things won't ha- won't affect us anymore. I think that's completely wrong. I think they are, because they are the product of the brain structure, that we are effectively cognitive misers. We are aiming to get it, to, to get away with being as stupid as we could possibly be, because the brain is an enormously expensive organ to run. It takes by far and away the most energy in your body to actually run your brain. Therefore, people don't want to run it. And that, that's just evolution's good sense. And so it's incredibly hard to change. And so I think rather than asking yourself, you know, how do I remove these biases? I think the better question is, or an easier question is, how do I turn these biases to my advantage? Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a cynical way, in, a, in the secondhand car salesman kind of way, but rather, hey, look, if I know I'm going to cling on to irrelevant information anchoring, how do I how do I change that so it's not irrelevant information, but rather something relevant? How can I build an investment process that is centered on the sorts of things that should matter for, for long-term returns? How do I build a business that is able to exploit long-term horizons when everybody is looking at the short term? I think those are a much more sensible framings of the questions that that we kind of need to to address. James, so I guess the the thing is, so for a newcomer, they listen to you going, telling a waste of time speaking of management forecasting. They go and read Nassim Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomness, straight afterwards, and they think, oh my goodness, how on earth can I, how can I make it work? You know, what, what, um, and I guess that brings you to your excellent book, Value Investing. Um, which I, you know, had many copies in my office and I've handed them out to interns and staff members along the way. So uh, they've never gave them back to me. I think they just enjoyed them so much or they were too worried about what I, what I was going to ask them about. But, but perhaps that links to, to value investing. We both value managers here and how you think that overcomes some of those, those problems that you've just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I, the way I frame that that is is using Howard Marks, right? Uh, Howard Marks is is a a, a brilliant writer, uh, head of Oak Tree Capital, and he has this dichotomy that that I love, which is there are two types of investors. There are the I know investors and the I don't know investors, and I think that is such a powerful framing, and it it links so nicely with Ben Graham's the way of timing and the way of pricing. And so for me, look, I'm an I don't know investor. I don't know the future. And I'm fine with saying I don't know the future. It makes me very dull company at dinner parties, you know, when people say, oh, what's going on? I don't know. I don't care, but I don't know. Whereas what could be more interesting than sitting around with someone who's got an opinion on everything um, and knows what's going to happen? It's fascinating, right? So to me, the I don't know investors, um, and, and Howard is, is exceptionally good at articulating this, are really the value guys, right? We don't know the future. That's why we invest with a margin of safety. We know we're going to be wrong about stuff. That's why we insist on buying stuff cheap, because the bad, some of the bad news is at least already in the price. If I buy a stock trading on a ludicrous multiple, all the good news is already in that price. So everything has to turn out perfectly 
for that company to to be worth what the market is priced. And maybe it will. It's possible, right? I've been hideously wrong on companies before where, yeah, they've been the winner. The trouble is they were also the losers who were up there and just never, ever delivered the expectations. And so for me, value investing is kind of like behavioral self-defense. It's saying, hey, I don't know the future. I can't know the future. I need to work out how to build a portfolio that will be robust to lots of different outcomes, right? And that that comes back to that Elroy Dimson view of risk. More things can happen than will happen. So I need to build a portfolio that isn't optimal. It doesn't depend on one state of the world occurring, but rather has the ability to survive lots of different states of the world. And so I need to want... I want to have a robust portfolio. That portfolio must be value orientated because then I have wiggle room for being wrong because I'm going to be wrong about stuff, right? And for me, you know, growth investing, trying to pick the winners is incredibly hard, whereas value investing is is more about avoiding the the value traps, and that's still hard enough. But at least uh, I've got a framework where, hey, look, I've I've got this margin of safety. So for me, value investing is the behavioral self-defense. It's also long-term. You can't buy a, a stock thinking, oh, it's going to turn around tomorrow because it won't, right? We're all value guys. We've all bought stocks and then, and, you know, the short-term buy that became a very long-term hold. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a core holding now. You're like, Jesus, it's been that bad. Oh, yeah, it's really sucked. Um, yeah, jeez, how do I do this shit in my portfolio? Um, we've all done it, right? We've all been there. Um, and so that that kind of, that to me is, is is protecting ourselves. It's saying, look, we have to be long term because as a value guy, I don't know when this thing turns around. Seth Klarman talks about it. He when whenever there's a big crash, Seth always talks about not trying to pick the bottom. You invest on the way down because you don't know where that bottom is. You can't, and so you're like, okay, I'm gonna. You have a battle plan. Jeremy talks about uh, Jeremy Grantham talks about battle plans, and he's like, this is the way we're going to invest, and we we literally we have battle plans so that. Hey, look, when the market hits this level, we're going to buy. When the market hits this level, we're going to buy. And we buy on the way down. We we probably won't get the bottom any more than anybody else will do. Um, and so we have these plans. We slice in. And that's just a way of saying, hey, look, we don't know the future. And so I think that that value approach is inherently long-term. It gives you a margin of safety. Uh, whether you meet company management or not is up to you, but uh, we don't very much. Uh, some of my colleagues do. Um, I'm not sure why. Uh, probably they have too much time on their hands. It is good fun. But I don't bother. And so for me, it's a waste of time. Unless you're an activist investor, in which case maybe it's it's a bit different. But if you're not an activist, that that's I don't see the point. So I think value investing is 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 so naturally aligned with trying to protect yourself. You know, you don't try and know everything as a value guy, right? You you focus on valuation. That's the thing that matters most. If you can only know one thing about uh, a company, for me, it's their valuation, because that's that's just the most important criteria that I can think of. Everything else is secondary. So I, I also don't get massively confident about stuff. I don't run hugely concentrated portfolios because, hell, I could be wrong about an awful lot of stuff. So I think there's a lot in value investing that just kind of naturally aligns with the behavioral side of or the behavioral mistakes that people to make. So to me, value investing is just a natural response to the problems. It's not flawless. We're still going to get stuff wrong, but it's at least a lot of, of kind of baby steps in the right direction. I think that's 
um, one of the most important things, right? That you can't change everything at once. And so if you're building a or attempting to build a behaviorally robust investment process, you can't just kind of throw everything at the wall and go, there you are, that, that's behaviorally right. It's baby steps, right? It, it's mm-hmm. kind of like dieting. Um, you know, it's best if you don't keep a jar of sweets on your desk. Why? Because if you've got a jar of sweets, your hand's going to be in a bloody mm-hmm. jar, right? And then, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for licorice. Uh, yeah, I'll eat licorice all day long. So guess what? I don't have licorice around. That way I can't eat it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's those kind of easy wins that I think value investing helps bring to the table to combat some of these behavioural biases. That's brilliant. Love, love that answer. Let's change tack a little bit and talk about something you've written about fairly recently. So I think you've, it's a recent note. It's a curious incident of the elevated profit margins. And it's actually a follow-up note to something you wrote about 10 years ago, which was that margins in the US, they're extremely elevated. And I think in, in all, everything pointed to them probably not staying at those elevated levels. This is a follow-up piece after they stayed at those elevated levels. And so maybe just give us a little brief background. But I think what, what's really, really interesting is this is you very publicly saying, actually, I was wrong on that thing, coming back to what you were saying a minute ago. And I want to talk about that aspect as well as just the, the piece itself. So maybe you start by, by talking about the piece a little bit. Sure. So I, I think you're, it's, it was a, an interesting piece because to me, people are very bad, you're right, at admitting their mistakes. All right. And and it comes back to that, hey, it's better, you know, in general, it's better to sound confident. And and putting your hand up and say, Yeah, I f-ed up, I got something wrong, is is kind of not very common. I've done it plenty of times. I've got stuff wrong and I've I've admitted publicly. I think my worst one actually wasn't even a profit margins one. It was back in oh the mid-90s. JGB, Japanese government bond yields were at three percent. And I wrote a piece saying Japanese bond yields cannot possibly go lower. And I watched them half, half, and half again. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, that was a fairly humiliating experience. And I think as I've got older, that kind of ego I had when I was in my 20s has just taken such an almighty bashing over the years that I no longer feel any any shame. I'm just like, yeah, I screw up, right? And um, there was a, a great piece that Tetlock uh, wrote, and, and Phil Tetlock has studied um, uh, kind of forecasting and, and forecast errors. And he pointed out that the people usually use kind of one of five categories or defenses uh, for why their forecast was wrong. Um, and uh, the first is the if only defense. You know, if only the Fed hadn't raised rates, then then my my forecast about the market would have been right, et cetera. The second was was he called the uh, the, the Ketras Parabolus defense, uh, which was I would have been right um, if only nothing else had changed. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, right. <laughs> the third was, I was almost right. Uh, the thing nearly happened. Um, you're like, how do you judge whether something nearly happens or not? I don't know, but uh, I kind of like that one. The the fourth is the one that I constantly have used over the years. It just hasn't happened yet. And that was really the genesis of the note on corporate profits, because I spent 10 years saying, they're going to mean revert, they're going to mean revert. It just hasn't happened yet. Uh, ten years later, it still hadn't happened, and I was like, "Yeah, it's I, I was wrong, uh, utterly wrong." And so I, I wanted to know why I was wrong, um, and because there's this, there, there are two ways you can you can kind of deal with these things. And, and Carol Dwork talks about the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. Uh, and a fixed mindset, any kind of errors are held as mistakes, and the growth mindset is, "Hey, 
errors are a way of, of, of learning and improving. And to me, that that's very true. I, I do martial arts in my spare time. I'm a, uh, I do a lot of Taekwondo. Um, and there's an expression when, when we spar and we fight, which is you never lose. You either win or you learn. And I, I really like that. And it's true. I mean, yeah, of course you've lost. Um, but you really want to learn something from that experience. If I've just got my ass handed to me by you know, an 18 year old, I'm like, OK, how? Why? Uh, he was younger and faster, but you know, I should, yeah, why, why, how, how, what, what can I do about that? How do I adapt my fighting style to, to try and deal with that? And to me, that's, that's the essence of it. And I take no shame in being wrong, right? I was wrong. Fine. What do I learn from it? And in the case of the elevated profit margins, I was looking at it and going, geez, you know, I thought the fiscal deficits would come down because they had been a major driver uh, up to about 2012 when I, I wrote the first note, uh, which was called What Comes Up Must Goes Down uh, and was clearly wrong. Fiscal deficits have been elevated. And I was like, OK, so fiscal deficits are likely to come down. Therefore, margins are likely to come down. Well, guess what happened? Fiscal deficits didn't come down. And it wasn't just COVID. It was if I strip out the COVID years, it isn't just about the pandemic. It turns out that over the last 10 years, we have had fiscal deficits that have been surprisingly high um, by my standards. Uh, and that was was the source of my forecast error. Um, and knowing that, I, I, I was fascinated. I was like, okay. Uh, so I, I, I had another prior. I was like, oh, it's because everybody's you know reduced their taxes. I was wrong again. It turns out it had nothing to do with with revenues being lower. It was just expenditures were much higher. And I was like, wow, that's shocking. And so that that to me led to a, a really interesting opportunity to learn. I was like, okay, so how how why did why did I think that? Why did I forecast? <laughs> I fell into my own pitfall. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, March is going to forecast. <laughs> Uh, wrong. Uh, so I'm no better than anybody else. I was overconfident, over-optimistic, and I screwed up. Um, you know, I, to me, that was a, a great experience to learn from and to remind myself, yeah, look, you you got this wrong. I think the one thing that I took some comfort in, uh, and this may be kind of uh, me trying to, uh, to to look for the silver lining in having really f***ed up, was to, to say, hey, even if these margins are incredibly high, the US market is actually very expensive. Even if I say these margins are now at a, to borrow uh, Fisher's, Irving Fisher's terrible phrase, a permanently high plateau, even if I build that in, the US market is still outrageously expensive. And so therefore, I take some comfort in the fact that our portfolio positioning hasn't been driven by my error. I'm sure it was informed by my error, but it wasn't. It doesn't matter as such because there were other reasons for for not owning the U.S. Um, in in general. Um, but it's to me, it's it was really a learning exercise, and that's to me, errors are just that. They're a way of of learning, right? They're how how I can look to get better. I've been doing this thirty years. I hope to be doing it a few more. And it's kind of yeah, I still want to get better, right? And James, I guess just on the U.S. being expensive, it's expensive on a price basis. So as soon as you start adding in the debt from companies thinking that interest rates are going to be low forever. So on an enterprise value basis, and compare that to the enterprise value multiples elsewhere in the world, Japan, Europe, um, you know, how do you feel about that and where the opportunities are these days? Yeah, absolutely. So you, know, you look at that and, and it's insane, right? I looked at EV to EBITDA for um, the US, it's at 13 times. Japan is at five times. 
I'm like, Jesus. So as soon as you bring in any sort of the debt side, the balance uh, sheet equations, you're like, this this is nuts. Um, so what looked bad on a, a kind of simple PE kind of Schiller PE metrics looks so much worse when you start building in the, the debt equations. And I, I'm just in the process of writing a note, uh, having a note published called Slow Burn Minsky Moments. And the idea here is that there are systemic vulnerabilities um, that build up over time. And the US's private sector debt is, is one of those. It's, it's one of those things that doesn't matter right up until it does. So you can carry on building up debt um, and the world looks hunky-dory. And, and Minsky used to talk a lot about um, uh, stability begets instability. And to me, it's, it's Taleb used to talk about black swans, right? And these aren't black swans. These are these are gray swans, or so they're probably white ones, that people just don't look for. They're, they're predictable surprises. So when the shit does hit the fan, everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, look at that. That's why. You just The problem is the timing uncertainty. You never know when. Mm-hmm. And that takes me back to the value approach, right? That, hey, we don't know anything about timing. So we, we're used to dealing with timing uncertainty. And then it's like, so we're back to how do I build a robust portfolio? Uh, but for me, the emerging markets, Japan, basically anything but the US looks okay. Um, and so the US sucks. There are pockets of interesting stuff in the US. Deep deep value looks kind of interesting because it's been shunned. Uh, nobody wants to own, you know, the the cheap and cheerful shit. No, you know, we, we ought to own the, the great stuff, the, the ones we're not embarrassed to talk about. Uh, so deep value actually in the US looks kind of interesting. Uh, but in general... Anything but the US looks much more interesting. Japan, I think, is fascinating because Japan, like the US, has had high profit margins, uh, not as high as the US, but had high profit margins. But I think there it's much more sustainable, or at least I understand it much better because they've been paying down debt. Uh, Japanese corporates have spent so long deleveraging that now what's happening is they're Operating profits are now actually flowing through to the bottom line and hitting neck income, which has to be good news for, for equity investors. And so I think their profits uptick is much more clear and, and probably sustainable from my point of view, which makes, you know, when I'm looking at them on five times EV to EBITDA, I'm like, yes, please. And I, and I think the EV number doesn't include the investment securities on the balance sheet. It always just takes cash. And, and of course, that will have gone up with the rise in the market. Yeah. Absolutely. It's even cheaper. Right? These are really kind of interesting now. Yeah. Well, James, we're going back into the time machine and we're going back uh, to Dresden and another piece of research you wrote there. And it's actually my favourite ever piece of sell-side research uh, and had nothing to do with markets whatsoever. It was uh, the psychology of happiness, if it makes you happy. And it was 10 things which make you happy based on uh, data that you collected from a whole bunch of scientific studies. I won't ask you to go through all of it, and it's online, and I, I suggest everyone looks it up uh, for their own well-being. But is there anything that you'd add to those 10 uh, which you had on that list? Yeah, I think there was a, a note that I wrote subsequent to that, which was on the same topic. And it was really about trying to defend yourself against what's called hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is just a simple fact that we get used to stuff. And so, you know... You buy a new car. At first, it's really, yeah, it's awesome. I've got my new car. Six months later, the kids have been in the back, the dogs have been in the boot, and yeah, your, your wife's been driving it, and it's been through potholes, or it has if it's anywhere like I live, yeah, massive potholes. It's just like off-roading, just driving down my road. <laughs> um, and you're like, yeah, yeah, shit. The, the, the new car is not new anymore. 
And so we've adapted to it. And physical possessions are very, very um, subject to hedonic adaptation. Experiences, on the other hand, are not subject to hedonic adaptation. And so what I argued in the, the note that I wrote subsequent to those 10 rules that I think is a nice addition would be the 11th rule, is if you're going to spend money, spend it on experiences, not on physical goods. Uh, beyond a certain level, yeah, everybody needs a certain amount of, of income and, and a certain amount of goods to, to be alive. But beyond those kind of, of uh, metrics, you can make yourself much happier by going to concerts, going diving, uh, training taekwondo, whatever it may be, yeah, something that gives you an experience because the head ad- the hedonic treadmill, the the adaptation just doesn't kick in with experiences in the way that it does with phys- physical possessions. And so I think that's something that I would really want to add to that list. Um, that list has got me so many into so much hot water over the over the years. Particularly number three, which, um, <laughs> which, which was go and have sex. Um, which, uh, I, 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 yeah, people, I, I, somebody asked me to do this, was a hilarious story at GMI. They won't thank me for telling this. Um, but somebody asked me at one of our bashes to, to do, to revisit this list. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I, I put the presentation together and I sent it to, um, to, uh, to, to compliance and, and various other things that we have to do. And they came back and went, yeah, we can't have you talk about number three. And I'm like, why not? I'm like, pretty sure everybody here, pretty sure everybody here has done number three, probably, even if it's with only with themselves. Um, possible. But um, they were like, no, you, you can't talk about number three. And I'm like, Jesus. So I didn't do it. I was like, no, I'll talk about number three or I won't, I won't do it. No, I don't do it. I'm like, okay. Um, that's fine. So, yeah, number three has got me into a lot of hot water over the years. But it's uh, to me. I was just like, oh, go do something you enjoy, have sex. Um, but what the hell? What would I know? So, so the, the the biggest thing that people should take away, apart from point three, is is definitely spend time with your family and spend on holidays with them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Don't buy the Ferrari. Don't go and buy a big house. You're just not going to enjoy it. Uh, that's yeah, good. exactly. It's yeah, and it's so tempting because everybody thinks those material things are what matters, and you know, it's it's that. In the rat race, it's a measure, right? It's like, oh, that's that's a measure of your success. But actually, it's not. Um, the other one that I loved, which uh, also probably get me into trouble, was uh, nobody on their deathbed has ever, ever said, I wish I spent more time at the office. And it's it's. I think one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was people re-evaluated their work-life balance. And that, to me, has been one of the, the upsides of, of the pandemic, that kind of reappraisal of, Okay, how do I? It, you have to balance. We need to work. I love my work. It's 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 still a passion, but it doesn't mean it's all that I have in my life. I have my family. I, we all we all train taekwondo, so we all train together, which is is great. We have a passion as a family together. Yeah, we have dogs. We go for walks. You know, those kinds of things are so much more important than yeah, the big house and the fast car. You know. Yeah, James. I guess that just reminds me of a quote. Even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Um, you know, absolutely and, right. And then, just on the experiences thing, I, I do recall reading something, and it's made a very good point, which is that you experiences improve with age. So you recall your holiday twenty years ago, and you oh, how magnificent the weather was and the beach. You forgot about the fact that you queued for three hours at passport control. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you forget you got food poisoning as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Got the runs for a week and a half. It's terrific. Um, you know, um, we've all had those holidays. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, you look back and it, it's that's the point of the hedonic adaptation. You simply don't adapt to them. And so the memory stays crisp. You know, I, I love concerts. I love rock music, uh, which accounts for why I'm deaf in one ear, I think. But, you know, there is nothing better than going and seeing ACDC live. I'm like, yes, I can't hear for a week afterwards, but damn, the experience is awesome. I want my kids to have that, but probably protect their hearing a bit better than I protected mine. But um, I um, I want them to have that 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 sense of joy and that experience going diving. My kids just um, last year qualified as, as open water divers. And so now they dive and it's like, what better experience is there than strapping on an aqua and dropping under the waves and playing with sharks? You know, it's these are wonderful experiences. And wow, you know, you, you want to accumulate as many of those as you can because that's that's what you'll look back on when your life is uh, in later life. You'll look back and go, yeah, I did that. And that was damned awesome. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're coming towards the end, but there's two things I wanted to touch on. The first was I did say we'd come back to Ben Inca. And it's because when Ben Inca was on the podcast, uh, I actually primed Juan with a question, ask him what it's like to work with James Montier. And he gave an answer. And it's only fair that you would get the chance to say what you think of working with Ben Inca. So over to you. So I'll tell you a story. Um, I wrote uh, many years ago now a parody of GMO. Uh, and I did it based on the characters of Winnie the Pooh. Um, so, so Jeremy was clearly Christopher Robin. He could take us out, play with us, and then put us back in the box whenever he wanted. Uh, ben was Al, the wisest creature in the forest, because he is. He sits in charge of asset allocation, and he thrives on asking really, really difficult questions. Sadly, my job is to try and answer them. And so he drives me nuts because he comes up with these really, really tricky questions. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. How am I going to answer that? Um, and you know, there was one that's taken me like oh, almost 10 years to, to, to kind of uh, come up to an answer. And I finally came up uh, about six months ago with an answer. And I'm like, aha, yes, light bulb. And I, I showed it to Ben. He was like, nice. And I was like, yes, marvelous. <laughs> uh, so he, I'm I'm Pooh Bear, by the way, in Winnie the Pooh. I'm I'm the bear with very little brain, and long words bother me. <laughs> so everybody in AA was a character from Winnie the Pooh. But working with Ben is brilliant. Honestly, he he, if Ben has a flaw, it is he can be a little detail obsessed. And so Ben thinks, you know, five point seven is different from six. I I don't. I'm I'm like yeah, first order. They're the same. I think one of the nice things, and, and Ben and I have talked about this a lot, is that both being value guys. Three out of four times we come to the same conclusion, but it's that fourth time when we differ, that's what's really interesting. Because then it's like, okay, let's understand why. What is it that, that we're, we're, we're seeing differently? And I know I, I read Ben's uh, response to what it was like working with me, and I, I had to smile because he said it was good and frustrating simultaneously. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'm sure I am deeply frustrating to, to an awful lot of people. But a GMO, there are kind of two jobs you want. One is Jeremy's and the other is probably mine. The one job you don't want is Ben's because Ben has to sit in the middle of the two of us and kind of think, Jesus, who put these two mad Englishmen either <laughs> side of me? And he has all the downside because it's poor old Ben, uh, together with John Thorndike these days, who run all the portfolios. And so I have, I'm, I'm like minister without portfolio. I have lots of, 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 of 
ability to go out and talk and, and, and form views and, and try and influence stuff. And I had none of the responsibility of, hey, you own this stuff. That's all on poor Ben. Uh, so Ben Ben wears the, the, the world on his shoulders. Um, and Jeremy and I have the best jobs in the world because we don't. Um, we just get to pontificate about whatever we choose. And Ben's left there kind of going, gee, thanks. How do I put that into a portfolio? So I'm Ben and Jeremy were the reason I joined GMO, right? They, um, Ben called me up and said, look, I've known you for, for 15 years. Come, come work with us. And I'm like, oh, awesome. So I flew out to, to Boston, had an interview with various people at GMO. Um, I was actually really depressed after that because I, I sat on the harbour side uh, where our office used to be and I called my wife and I was like, okay, I've met you know, 15 people or whatever it was. I'm, I said, every one of them wants me to do something different uh, at GMO. And she said, because my wife is, is I'm a pessimist. I, you know, I look at the glass, it's always half full. My wife is an eternal optimist and she, she obviously had to be, she married me. She turned around and said, yeah, but look on the bright side. You can do whatever you want. And I'm like, good point. Um, and so yeah, 15 years later, here I am still at GMO. And it's it's a spiritual home, right? It may be flypaper for freaks, but I'm as freakish as the next guy. So for me, it, it's kind of, yeah, it's it's home. And working with Ben is, is nothing but pleasurable. Yes, he drives me nuts. And I know I do the same to him. But it, it's a productive kind of nuts that I think is, it's also founded on, uh, a, a really quite deep respect. And it's when we go back to talking about groups and how groups make decisions, we don't do group decisions. Ben and John had the final say in the portfolios, but we have a group who's, uh, we call it the investment review group, whose job it is to kind of challenge that. Mm-hmm. And so we sit there and we, we, we talk backwards and forwards. And I think groups, one of the features where that makes groups work is where group members have mutual respect. And it's kind of hard not to have for a respect for people when you're sitting around the table and you've got Jeremy Grantham and Ben Inker in there. Um, and, you know, I'm like, yeah, these are these are guys I've grown up with. J- Jeremy was huge inspiration on on the way I write, the way I think. Ben is, is just, yeah, he really is the wisest creature in the forest. And so, yeah, to work with those guys, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. The, there's only one last question, and that's something we ask every every guest on the show, and that's, what book would you recommend for people to listen uh, to read? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I'm going to give you two. Howard Marks is the most important thing, because to me there is so much wisdom packed in there, just in terms of you know, how the markets move from from optimism to pessimism, the I don't know versus the I know. I think his framing of the investment problem is is really top notch, um, and so I, I have tremendous respect for Howard. And the other one is a classic that. I don't think more than like one in 10 people has ever picked up, which is security analysis by Ben Graham. It is not a riveting read. It is not, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping, grab it. Um, but, you know, don't pay attention to the chapter on on balance sheets and, and railroads companies. It, it's irrelevant. But there is so much wisdom in there when he's talking about markets um, and how they behave. To me, the, it's one of the we talked earlier about how little things change over time, uh, and when you read security analysis, um, a bit like Keynes's Chapter Twelve, um, you know these things are written in the in the 30s, and yet somehow they resonate so much with everything we do today. Uh, and you know, uh, Graham talks about the problems of of short term uh, and how people don't focus on valuation, and, and you're like Jesus, um, you know, here we are. Uh, nearly 
um, a century later, and yet still people are falling into the same damn mistakes. And so to me, it's an incredibly powerful tool or, or work because it it's still so relevant. And yet people, you know, CFAs won't even have picked the book up. Yeah. Um, and that to me is just a crying shame. T- timeless advice in there, definitely. So we come to the end. It leaves me to thank you very, very much for coming. I really enjoyed this. Loved hearing about the seven deadly sins of fund management again. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much, Sean, as well, for for joining us and uh, joining me as an interviewer. But thank you, James. Oh, thank you, guys. It's been an absolute blast. I'm sorry I prattled on for so long. No, and for me, James, you, I, even though I didn't forecast, you beat expectations. That was fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> thank you thank, very much indeed, guys. Thank, thanks so Brilliant. much, Schroeders, to you. <laughs>